From failure to power, from collaboration to money, from participation to equity, we want to poke and provoke conversations about the key themes we need to address as urban resilience practitioners, researchers, and policymakers. Welcome to Urban Resilience Dialogues. I am Chiara. And I'm Karina. In this fifth episode of Urban Resilience Dialogues, we are talking about the role of tools to support communities and cities to build their resilience. Tools are at the earth of the action, and there are many, maybe one per stakeholders active in the field. I myself participated in the development of the City Resilience Action Planning Tool, or CityRAP tool a tool designed by UN Habitat, mainly developed for training city officials and technicians in sub-Saharan African cities. And this tool is, let's say, analog, drawing on participatory methods like participatory risk mapping and can be implemented with very little external intervention. But there are also many digital tools Our guests today have been working on simplifying and digitizing accessible and affordable software solutions to manage urban challenges. So in this episode, we'll be exploring the role tools can play in helping us to operationalize resilience. We'll take a step back to reflect on the role of tools in supporting learning and capacity building. we will also take a more critical perspective on the proliferation of tools and the challenges related to their application, governance and improvement. To explore the question of the use of tools in the field of urban resilience, we're joined by Evandro Holtz and Mariano Rossi, co-founders of Cliurb. Evandro is an urban engineer with more than 15 years of experience in more than 25 countries. He's the CEO and founder of Clurb, a startup developing and implementing digital tools on urban topics such as disaster risk management, slum upgrading, focused on the least resource cities and communities. He's also an international technical advisor to UN Habitat for Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa. Evandro served as a country coordinator in Cabo Verde in 2019, and he's currently the focal point for Angola. His work involves bringing policy to action and action to policy in the areas of sustainable urban development, housing, urban resilience, climate change mitigation and adaptation, environmental management and project financing. And our second guest, Mariano, is a consultant on urban and public policy. He has more than 10 years of experience at different levels of public management, the private sector and international cooperation, working in urban disaster resilience, climate change mitigation and adaptation, infrastructure management, open data and the urban management field. This all was in Argentina and also abroad. Moreover, so Mariano, alongside with Evandro, have recently started Clurb. Um, He's acquired an extensive know-how in social empowerment and capacity building activities, overseeing the design, coordination, conduction of workshops and trainings for a range of stakeholders such as local governments or vulnerable groups. So Mariano, Evandro, oh my God, what bios. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And first, as we start digging into this topic of of urban resilience and tools, um, we'd like to hear a bit about yourselves beyond these bios. Uh, How did you two end up working in urban resilience? 
did, I think the bios are a reflection of our, our experience in the startup world where you learn, I think, from the very first day on how to promote yourself, know and sell yourself quite, uh, quite nicely. <laughs> so uh, myself, I, I come uh, from, from Brazil. I'm currently based in Berlin, in Germany, but I have lived in quite a few countries ranging from uh, New Zealand, South Africa, Mozambique, Spain, Cabo Verde. And, and my background, my professional background is as diverse, ranging from construction and environmental consultancy and now urban management. And I think the reason why I ended up working in, in urban resilience is exactly because of this, this diversity. You know, I think uh, we all know that resilience is, is a topic that sort of uh, congregates a myriad you know, of different topics, you know, different areas within uh, one framework. So I'm actually happy to, to, to work in such a field that allows me you know, to, to connect all of the dots that I, I, I built throughout my, my career. Thank you, Evandro. And how about you, Mariano? I mean, usually I prefer to, to present myself as uh, activism, uh, Peronista uh, political activism, and Boca Juniors fans. So that, that will be actually just my, 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 my video. But uh, on this regard, how I started working on, on this resilience field, I think it was more like uh, I, I didn't notice that I was working on resilience fields. Uh, I mean, from my uh, very beginning, I started working. Uh, I mean, I always, uh, as an activist, I believe that to create uh, better societies and, and better worlds is, is necessary. And one way to do it was working to, to improve infrastructures in cities uh, and in my country. That's uh, very I mean, that's something that here in the Global South, uh, we, we are really looking forward to, to improve very soon. And one thing moved to another one. So you start improving sanitation, then you start improving the, the spatial planning of the city. And then you, I mean, one day uh, I did a master and I realized that I was working on resilience at my very own place. So it was more like uh, the resilience uh, find me and somehow uh, then uh, I was starting working on resilience. And can you tell us a bit about the birth of CLURB and in particular, what is the gap that you're aiming to bridge using digital, digital tools and digital solutions? Uh, well, uh, I think CLURB was, was, was born as spontaneously, you know, as, as, uh, as Mariano said, uh, resilient founders. So uh, I think having worked in all of these different areas, no, I mean you start realizing that there is a pattern of uh, something that is missing. No, you see all of these uh, quite interesting and quite successful kind of uh, one-off projects happening, and you see that maybe the tools that they are used, no, the instruments that actually are used to, to support these projects, they basically disappear or don't don't allow them to actually be replicated elsewhere. And this is something that was thoroughly discussed between Marianne and I during a football game here in Berlin, uh, of course, where else? And, uh, and this is basically where I decided to, 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 to start building CLURB. And of course, this was uh, for me, as at least personally, during a, a, a gap, you know, just after the master's where I had uh, I was in between jobs. So of course, uh, having enough time to think about it and, and develop the idea certainly allow this uh, this uh, this plan to come to fruition. So, yep, that's more or less from my side how this is started. Yeah, I mean, after uh, Resilience find, 
find us in, in our master degree there in, in Berlin. I mean, uh, coming from Global South, I was uh, I was really uh, very excited about all things going on there in, in Europe. I mean, a lot of uh, conference events, side events, and so on, and that were held by a great organization. And actually, I mean, uh, I was a little bit disappointed because uh, I did all the all the the way backwards because I started from from the very low, I mean, working on the field in the local governments and national government for ourselves. And then I, once I arrived to, to this uh, great global event, sometimes I feel like some kind of the connection about what was going on there at that level, um, what was ha really happening on, on the field. No? So the, the, I mean, uh, like uh, the topics were like uh, completely different. I mean, they were like a different language. So uh, actually one, when I was, I met uh, a banger, I started discussing uh, this. Uh, I mean, talking about this now, uh, chatting about how, I mean, this one thing was going on on, on the field and something on, on the, uh, a, a very high level. So, I mean, the club uh, was created trying to, to, to reduce that gap and, and try to, 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 to create a new way to, to solve this. Uh, these, these, these issues that we, we really, really think. I mean, to, to bring together this uh, global agenda, this uh, great, uh, great knowledge that was uh, that was there, and trying to, to implement that uh, at, at the local level. Now, where the these kinds of uh, of knowledge is really needed, and I mean, because one with the other is is, is meaningful, meaningless. So. I think it uh, it's connecting very well to our next question to you, where we would like to discuss tools as the key to operationalize resilience. So in the last episode of Urban Resilience Dialogues on experiments, we touch upon the fact that many urban experiments involve a strong role of technology and often lead to a series of challenges for the developers of the, the tool, but also for the end users and can be in relation to social and financial costs, but also regarding the amount of time that need to, to, to be used to set up the tool and to bring actual results. And we also talked about experimentation in the context of preparedness and resilience and how we go from the many good practices that exist at the stage of experiment to large-scale implementation. So my question for you both is, do you believe that tools can be more than just a successful experiment? And can they actual, actually like play a, a central role to maximize impact and go to scale in the field of urban resilience? Maybe you have some example in mind uh, including from your own professional practice uh, that we present in your in your bios that that maybe you you would like to share with us. Yeah, so I think I think you touch on a, on a very central point, uh, at least at least from me on, on that question, which is there is a lot of experience out there, actually su successful experience out there. I mean, even there. I mean, we get inspiration you know, from quite a few tools that were developed in the past, but they basically disappeared after. The project was, was implemented or basically where the funding 
stop flowing. You know? So in, in, in our sense, is uh, in our perspective, this is exactly where, where the problem lies. No, I mean it's it's not so much on the on the tool itself or or, or the, the sort of the technical or the technical component of the tool, but how the tools are seen. No, I mean they're seeing most of the the not having a business model behind it on, on how exactly they can promote scalability because uh, I understand that they might not be central for local implementation. They, they are supporting instruments for local implementation, but they're definitely a central uh, element for scalability. And once again, I don't think this, at least most of the projects that we've seen, they have this perspective of seeing something that can be replicated easily in quite a few different places, as we've seen, for example, for the, the case of, of, of CityRap. So, um, uh, yeah, so I'd say that the first element is definitely related much more with the, the business model, no? so understand how you can actually have a sustainable model that supports the, the ongoing usage and uh, implementation of the tool, then the tools or the technical things behind the tool themselves. And in terms of the experience behind it, I think, uh, I mean, I, I one of the, 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 the sort of uh, experience that led me to, to, to start working as well in this kind of uh, digital tools was uh, assignment that I had in, in Bangladesh, where I was basically tasked to, to, to develop this literally 10-page toolkit. And they told me that it couldn't be anything more than 10-page long because they've tried all of the different tools out there and they would apply to one city and they had to change it completely to apply to, to a different city, which was a tool in, in climate risk uh, assessment for infrastructure, for urban infrastructure projects. And this is was definitely a turning point in, in, in my career because uh, I was coming from a background where, I, I mean, I work in all of the tools that were developed for consultants and I mean, we'd be able to use them. But as Kara said, I mean, in the end, they're too complex even for some consultants to, to apply, but they're definitely not targeted at the cities themselves to actually uh, take the, a lead role in it. And I think, uh, once again, I mean, this was sort of a, a definitely a tipping point of my, my career where uh, I decided also to, to, to follow a similar conceptual path uh, to develop uh, tools moving forward. Nowadays, technology, Every day is changing and is increasing the amount of opportunities and possibilities that give to us to, to do things. Now, I mean, you you will notice in your everyday life how technology is, is changing and from your cell phone and you know, maps, some things that probably just a few years ago were like probably some things from science fiction. So uh, one of the gaps we're trying to address is that probably this amount of technology sometimes could uh, DC a little bit about this us and I mean and we developed very very complex solutions that probably at the local the, I mean they, they are not uh, used uh, they are completely useless at the level uh, at the local government level I mean sometimes you can deliver a wonderful mobile app, but then uh, you forget that if probably you go to Global South, um, I don't know, middle size or small cities, that probably they don't, it's not that they don't have cell phones, they need uh, prepaid cell phones and prepaid cars. I mean, this is about equity as well, no? Because uh, regarding technology in this world, I mean, uh, there is a huge, huge uh, inequity. So. Uh, I mean, tools 
tools should address that inequity. Now, I mean, uh, that was looking forward to, to do with our projects, and because otherwise we are developing solutions for uh, the cities that have more access to this kind of solution, and we are living uh, a great, I mean, most of the population in the world. So when we are delivering this kind of technology, this kind of tool, we definitely uh, need to, to take to, to address uh, this the inequality. And I think you know you both bring up um, different aspects. Um, so things such as governance, things like equity, technology, the role of technology, the inequities that are built in that. And and to my mind, this makes me think of of ingredients. Uh, you know, where your tools are a bit like your recipes. So you know, you have loads of them. You have loads of recipes, and actually, there's very many different cuisines in there. You know, so they have you know their geographical specificities. You might have some recipes that actually mean that you require very specific ingredients that you don't get in another cuisine. And then you also have another challenge of, of navigating what's in your fridge and what's in your cupboards and also how good a chef or how good a cook you are. Um, so, and, and finally, you pick a recipe, you pick a tool, um, you get your ingredients out, your governance, your technology, uh, but have you considered uh, who's coming for dinner and what are their dietary requirements? Do they have allergies? Uh, and never mind, you know, the nutrition element are you making a, a healthy are you making a balanced meal with your tool so you know you get the picture tools are great but they're not great on their own um and i wonder in your in your view perhaps uh, one for evandra what are the other ingredients that are really needed to make the application of urban resilience tools uh, successful and nutritious and sustainable you know a good meal <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that uh, I would like to think that uh, we are actually building the fridge and not bringing the ingredients. <laughs> uh, and we basically have a, a provided container where, where people can maybe put their ingredients and maybe mix with things that don't come out of the fridge, as I said. I mean, something, some ingredients that are actually set, I don't know, on the table or somewhere else, you know, and they are the ones that actually use our fridge, you know, to mix it afterwards or at least to keep information and ingredients they actually need in, in, in their own context now to to function and to operationalize uh, either resilience or, or transport or some upgrading projects so uh, but besides that <laughs> I think uh, what is the salt the salt uh, uh, I know and, and it's a very trendy word uh, but it's it's definitely governance and, and I would say that the both sides of, of governance I mean the the one side, which is uh, the one that I already mentioned, which is about having a, a, a business strategy behind the tool that actually allows it to be implemented not only in scale but in a sustainable way in in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a longer time frame. No, and when I say business strategy, I'm, I'm not saying uh, capitalism and, and let's uh, make a lot of money out of it. It's, it's not bad. No, we know that there's a massive range of uh, ways of how things can work you know, with a decent and, and social-oriented kind of a way of having a business strategy. So this is what I'm talking about, about having decent governance behind the tool, you know. And uh, on the other side of the tool, of course, I mean, uh, as, as I mentioned, especially when you're doing local implementation, and of course, uh, you, you have experience on that as well, is that if you don't have the proper governance structure supporting the implementation of the tool on the other side, I mean, it's just, it's just another tool. You know, in the end, it doesn't make any 
any any sense. And I mean, it, it's not going to be implemented anyhow. I mean, regardless of how good the, the tool is. And I think our experience uh, tells us that exactly. And I mean, the the, the reference to, to us selling the fridge, it's it's actually makes sense now that I think of it because. Uh, one of the, the the times that we we try to offer the ingredients, which is actually working with a, a community in, in Cabo Verde uh, during the the first uh, outbreak of, of COVID nineteen last year, and that we tried to offer something that was specifically geared towards uh, I don't know helping them going through the the, the first uh, hit of, of the pandemic, and they come back to us and say, well, this is not actually this is not the ingredient that we want. <laughs> we want a different ingredient. <laughs> We need an agreement that is related uh, to to helping, for example, some residents of the community and and, and finding support, you know, to 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 buy groceries or, or, or to find masks, you know. And and actually, we have people that would like to offer their help, but they don't know how. And we need, uh, 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 I don't know, a communication channel for for the the teachers in the school to actually, I don't know, uh, announce when when the the classes are back or, or how they can actually contact their students. So, once again, I mean, the, our experience is that. Every single place that we try to bring an ingredient, uh, the, the the local context says, "Well, yep, uh, let's throw it away." I mean, this is this is not the the curry that we like here. I mean, let's let's try something else. So, yep, that's more or less how how I see this uh, this happening. But yeah, the salt the salt is definitely uh, governance. <laughs> and Mariano, building on what Evandro just said, um, how what do we do with this almost like this capability gap? when it comes to the ways in which um, urban resilience tools are applied and also improved in a way between different chefs and kitchens and cuisines? As um, resilience professionals, I mean, and sometimes uh, we, we need to, to be a little bit humble. No, because we, we believe that uh, usually we are cooking probably in a three stars Michelin restaurant and we have like uh, ingredients, no? Uh, for example, uh, some some loves to have 168 ingredients in your recipe. Uh, when I'm talking about ingredients, probably I'm, I'm referring to to indicators. No, <laughs> I think that would be a, a very good example about that. And I mean, because we we need to sometimes to show off uh, at the end. I mean, I think a simple flavors are the one that could work uh, much more on the field. That these the ones that are oriented to very exquisite palettes. So I think definitely we need to to to, to see who is going to, to eat the food and who's going to use it because we, we need to avoid this kind of recipes for for professionals because mostly if you go to the local to work at the local level, uh, it's really hard and really weird to find uh, as good professional probably uh, to to you're going to find in, in a global events or at the university levels and so on. So I think uh, when you are going to, 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 to cook, you need to use, of course, a very specific recipe for the place you're going to do, to, to, to be, but uh, you need to focus who's going to, 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 to eat that food. And um, I mean, and yes, you need to be some, there are some very specific uh, ingredients you need to to use, but if you really go through all global south, I mean most of local governments they have very similar logic. Uh, so uh, probably a solution would be replicated. So you need to find that level 
where it could be easily replicable and it could be could be meaning that could work for, for a lot of places. But at the end, at the same time, uh, it means it could go directly to, I mean, it could, it could be used in that specific place. So yes, it's, I mean, and there it's more like a, like a, like an art. Um, Mariano, I'm going to keep building on that metaphor just a bit more. <laughs> Let's hope we're not taking it too far. But my questions were like, from a municipality or a civil society organization or a business, like when we see all the tools and the menus, like it's also hard to choose when you're in the position of uh, choosing when all this, like where you you open the fridge, right? Like what, what do you take? Uh, so how, from the perspective of uh, local government or governments, uh, that's also very difficult. I'm wondering what, so building the fridge is how you present, but that can be um, very hard. And I, I wanted to know maybe Mariana, what, what, is, what is your approach on this? Exactly, because uh, let's face it, uh, this is a huge business. So it's a better business to sell Lamborghinis that probably serve uh, now Volkswagen uh, Beetle. No, so I mean, and usually that what happens sometimes with very huge tools that you say, "Wow, this is amazing!" And now they have their own satellite working for them, and then you realize that people they just need a, a Beetle. They, they need more than that. I mean, because they can't afford something bigger. They don't know how to drive. I mean, they are not uh, uh, Formula One drivers. So, I mean, they just need a simple car and it will be perfect for what they need. So uh, we need to be really, really uh, pay attention to that. It's a very hard question. Uh, I would say that our approach, and uh, it definitely comes from experience as well, and, and, and learning again how to how to sell the, the creature or the ingredients is, the first question is uh, what ingredient what ingredients do we already have you no know, and what do you want to cook because as Mariano said uh, I don't know maybe you get to a city and they say well I mean uh, I'm rice I mean I'm Brazilian also I mean uh, rice and beans are fine no I mean I'm, I'm happy with having rice and beans and, and and I have already rice so if you can provide me with beans I'm, I'm good you no know, and some water uh, in other places, I don't know, they want to say something very sophisticated and, and, and they already have, uh, I don't know, 90% of the ingredients and they just need, I don't know, a, a specific uh, element you know, that would close a specific gap they, they already have. So I think that's uh, that it's very much aligned to what uh, Mariano was saying in terms of being a little bit humble and saying, wow, I mean, these guys have been working on, on, on resilience and as we all, uh, I don't know, for at least in the case of myself and, and Mariano, we realized that somehow we are working on resilience out of out of the blue. And most of people in, in municipalities, local governments, and even in communities, they're already working on resilience. They might not even know because sometimes the tools are too too uh, complex for them to actually realize that they're doing a lot of resilience-related stuff. No, so uh, once again, it's, it's trying to understand what ingredients are already there what is missing and, and, and closing the gap. So that's why uh, the, the, the tools or fridges or ingredients, they, they have to be flexible you know, and, and they have to uh, understand how exactly they fit into a context that things are already running. They might not be running 100%, of course, but there's something going on and people are doing something about it. So that's the first realization 
every time. So, uh, well, it's a, it's an old cliche, but it's about listening much more than actually speaking, which is very hard, not that easy, but yeah. <laughs> I really love both your reflections. And I think there's lots that comes to mind in terms of, you know, what are the implications for business models? What are the implications for different professionals and different roles? Um, and I guess maybe for our next question, before we explore that in a bit more detail, um, we'd like to take a step back and, and maybe go a bit uh, philosophical uh, in regards to tools. Um, and, and this uh, reflection started from a conversation that we were having um, about data availability, uh, which is on everyone's minds. So policymakers, companies, municipalities, CSOs, academics, everyone talks about the lack of data, the lack of comparable data, the issue of downscaling data sets, you know, all of these issues that we know about and we keep talking about them. And, and in a way, data has really become a new currency um, and it's a very hot currency. But if we take a step back, um, we were wondering, is the lack of data in fact a symptom of a much bigger challenge in how we account for and how we navigate uncertainty. And here there's different worldviews. So you can take a view that complex challenges such as urban resilience will always have this issue. So having to make decisions based on imperfect data which then means that we can't just rely on models or quantitative tools. And there's the other view that complex challenges are quantifiable and that only by quantifying them, we can obtain this overview that we need so that we can make decisions. Um, so this is really underpinned by a belief that we need to measure and compare in order to act or intervene in a situation. So they're both quite different and very, very live debates, not just in urban resilience, but also more widely in climate adaptation. So my question to you both is, um, how do we then deploy these tools to navigate an increasingly uncertain and volatile world? Um, and, and perhaps where do you stand on this spectrum of beliefs and, and where does your work um, fit into this spectrum? In my experience, at least, uh, has been that most of the time, even these sort of competing views, no competing perspectives on uh, be it data, be it approaches, they're much more complementary than actually contrasting, you know? And, for example, I don't know, there, there, there's some elements that are easier to measure and maybe there, there's data or enough data available you know, for us to, to have a good idea in terms of uh, the, the quantity, be it exposure or even modeling, for example, or uh, I don't know, the, the probability of occurrence of, of, of different events. But some other things such as vulnerability, you know, in socioeconomic uh, data, I mean, this is much more harder to, 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 to explore. So. And, and I mean, if you if you add to that that there is a massive diversity, you know, of cities or even communities within each city. So I mean, that that basically provides a picture of where you, you have to use all of the different perspectives and sort of bring them together, you know, to to, to make your cake. You know, if, in the end of the day. So how how we uh, actually uh, approach it is is basically trying to to bring a perspective of of, of incrementalism and, and flexibility. So basically. Uh, allowing, for example, the, the, the tool itself to become more sophisticated as the, the city grows their capacity. No? So in the beginning, again, they, they, they can have a mostly qualitative kind of approach to, to, to risk, uh, uh, I don't know, analysis, for example, and as they understand the process, and, and once again, they start realizing that actually done much more in resilience than they actually previously thought, you know, they can actually start collecting more data and, and maybe try to quantify and, and, and find some of this, this element. So once again, trying to understand that 
there are cities with different priorities that uh, with different uh, ingredients and different uh, levels of, of, of data and capacity and, and, and allowing for that to happen the way that, I mean, the cities and their, their context can actually uh, apply them. So, yeah, this is more or less the approach we, we would take. Uh, we are facing a very interesting paradox because, I mean, nowadays we can do almost whatever we want with data at a high level. However, once you go to, to, to local government, it's really, really difficult to find uh, good and use, uh, useful data. So, um, and I mean, to, to, to analyze and to create data is something extremely expensive as well, you know, because using, we have uh, the technology available, but I mean, it's not for everyone because it's expensive on one hand. On the other one, it demands uh, a lot of, uh, of human resources, you know, to, to, to mining and to do, to, to, to do all the process. So, then again, we need to find uh, a middle ground solution, you know, uh, something that uh, helps us to deliver data. Because I mean, all, all here we are all professionals. We know how difficult it's going to feel and get statistic data uh, in, I mean, in global south countries and global south cities. I mean, and once you are probably easier at the national level, it will be a little bit harder at the regional level, but once you go to the city level, <laughs> that will be, the, the thing will be extremely difficult. Uh, and this even with, uh, with technology. So, I mean, you, you need to find a way, a sustainable way, economical, uh, environmental, and so on, of doing it. Building on that, on the, on the data availability, and we're talking different implementation in the case of different cities, uh, I would like to talk about the issue of data availability, particularly in small and mid-sized cities. I mean, many tools are often developed in capital cities, uh, even in uh, global South countries, not only of course, but uh, it it can be very difficult to implement these tools in, 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 in some cities where we don't have data and this issue is also coupled with increasing efforts to embed participatory approaches to leverage community knowledge uh, but how do we find the resources to do that uh, we we know that uh, uh, participatory approach are very useful but we still find, need the resource to collect this data and so how do we feed the tools uh, or, or what is the most efficient way for data collection, according to you? Uh, are future models going to rely even more or of like community, uh, communities and residents filling their own questionnaires when they all going to have a smartphone and taking photos and proposing solutions? Like, is it what we, where we are going? Maybe based on, 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 on my previous answer, there's there's no single solution. No, I think, for example, there there I mean our experience says that for example, when, when their governance structures are already in place, for example, in this community that work with in Capo Verde, or even for example, the the the, the experience we had with the city of, of Cedicini in Brazil, things could go much smoother because they already know, for example, who to contact and, and how to reach out to the people that actually could help, for example, feeding the data to uh, 
either the two or for any other initiative they might have. You know, and uh, the, the the community in Cabo Verde, for example, they they know that, for example, the penetration of smartphones was very limited. You no, know, for most settlement and. Uh, they basically design uh, or assign no uh, focal points that could actually help, for example, collecting data in, in some specific areas of the, the community so as to allow the whole actually area to, to be covered. You know, so this is an example of how things can work. But I think the, 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 the sort of crucial point here is that uh, there, there's action no behind data collection because we know that you can keep on collecting data forever, no? And I mean, you can never get satisfied because you can always go an extra level. You can always find tune. You can always refine information. There's always ways of doing it. So the 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 challenge here is that okay. So how much is the minimal amount of data that we need to actually perform something that might not be optimal, but at the same time, are not screw or or limit our possibilities of integration in the future, no? And I think this is. And of course, each context will probably provide uh, a slightly or significantly different answer. But this is more or less uh, where where we stand. I mean, trying to to allow, for example, okay, you've connected, you've collected, you analyze some data, you do some, you, you action. You no, know? I mean, you act. There's 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 something happening too based on on, on this data. Uh, you build uh, a, a trust relationship, you know, between the different stakeholders, and you see that it's actually something happening uh, around it, and then you take the next step to start, I mean, to continue, for example, next levels of, of data collection. So I think the sort of this uh, iterative approach would be the, the, again, it's not the, the, the single solution, but I think it's, it's definitely uh, one of the main elements that should be there. Yeah, and, and on that iterative approach. Uh, Mariano, maybe I wonder if you have any reflection about what might this mean for how we design tools, maybe to complete what Evandro said and, and what role uh, can co-design play, for example, designing with municipalities rather than only on their behalf? I mean, this is a huge challenge. Uh, it's not easy at all. <laughs> we are talking about a lot of stakeholders, but uh, the only way to do it for myself is, is on the field. So I, I think that's how our solutions are created. I mean, it's, um, it's from the field and then you start building on one step at a time. Uh, I think definitely, definitely uh, you need to improve just a little how the things are they doing uh, how how they are doing in the series now so uh, definitely you need to shut one i mean probably for for us it look like a real something really really small but probably something um, i mean that uh, they are not going to notice but at the end uh, that's where the the, the big change uh, happens no so uh, it's about being humble, humble and uh, being uh, really, really um, concerned about how to improve just a little every day uh, the life of people there in the field. And that way, you're going to build uh, better and um, better tools that will help them. Thank you. Small steps for big impacts. Okay, and for our last question. We'd like to explore a bit more this relationship between tools, data, and decision-making. 
So if your data is imperfect and your tools are many and they are complex and it takes time to get to conclusions and recommendations based on analysis, then how do you build the trust of decision makers in how robust your findings are and also the trust of the public then to implement actions and 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 get things done uh what do you think uh maybe uh, again uh, sort of trendy words in terms of uh, as i said i mean participation and uh, well not trendy i mean extremely relevant but you know very mainstream participation or, or transparency or accountability but yeah in the end i think it all comes back to to what you do with the data and also i mean we've seen for example now the the during the pandemic the the amount of data that was collected no i mean and and, and you could see that actually i don't know some people were a lot of people are actually willing to 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 provide data voluntarily you know and 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 and, and actually have all of these different uh, mobile apps you know that would almost literally trace everywhere you go <laughs> and 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 store a lot of this information but if you actually believe that this is being used you no know, for for a, for a, an interesting purpose uh you you're most likely going to participate in that of course that's a very extreme case no i mean in, in these situations we're talking about much more uh local implementation and and i think that's uh th th this is where the, the the secret behind it lies no i mean it's basically trying to understand how you can actually engage uh the these different stakeholders in decision making and really uh not only making them believe but actually uh, uh ensuring that uh, when the decisions are being made, the data that has been collected, information has been collected, and only not only quantitative data, uh, data but also, uh, again, opinions and perceptions and insights and recommendations are being brought into the table when discussing and discussing uh, a way forward. And, and I mean, building trust, as you know, I mean, it's uh, something that can take years and it can be broken in, in, in a matter of seconds. So it's it's always a very risky business, especially considering that uh, I mean political continuity depends a lot on on external factors that uh, I mean out of control for for most people. But still, I think there there's definitely space for that. And uh, again, based on our experience, that might not be completely uh, statistically representative, but there is definitely space for that. And and there's both willingness from from, from the government side and the, the community side uh, more often than not to actually sort of work together and and once again the the what's missing there it's uh it's tools and instruments that actually can actually help that uh happening uh well i, I don't want to, to sound cheesy but i think the trust is uh something that you need to build now and it's a uh, two-way things so uh i mean something that, i mean and so it demands process and i mean very short-term work on the field from people that came from outside i mean you need to, to really involve people uh, local people you know. could be from national level regional level uh, of course and of course of course local stakeholders i mean it's, it's like a, uh, and, and only in that way you 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 will need to uh, achieve the ultimate goal of these tools that should be developed uh, local capacities uh, 
And I think otherwise it will be uh, it will be a complete um, loss of time because uh, I mean you need there I mean when a, a project a programs ends you need someone to continue and um, it's going to be uh, the local authorities local stakeholders so you need a tool uh, sustainable tool meaning that it will be keep being used in the future. Thank you very much for those reflections. I think it's um, really interesting to see almost like all the different ingredients that make tools successful, almost like the make or break. Um, and I think it's been great to explore in a bit more detail, you know, um, the role of governments, the role of governance, the role of trust. Um, also actually seeing incremental progress uh, as something that is very much needed. I think that's one of my takeaways from today. I think a lot of the times we focus on, you know, transformation and we expect, uh, you know, a completely different world by tomorrow. And sometimes actually seeing the role of tools and, and how can tools um, help us improve the everyday and give us some incremental success, um, I think is really, is a really useful reminder around almost like what, what you guys were saying a bit earlier around like that humility of, of actually what we can achieve and um, what can be mobilized. So thank you for this really, really great conversation conversation um and to to wrap up um we have a very very geeky joke for you so uh we had fun writing this but let's see you can tell us if uh, if our career should actually go towards stand-up comedy rather than urban resilience so um you know and uh, so so here we go um an urban resilience profile a climate action plan a disaster resilience scorecard and a city scan walk into a bar and the bartender says, guys, this is the bar, not the tool shed. Thanks for listening to Urban Resilience Dialogues. We are Karina Angeloyu and Chiara Tomaselli. Want to get in touch with us? Drop us a line at urbanresiliencedialogues at gmail.com or you can tweet us with the hashtag URDialogues. Chat to you soon.